Good morning, and welcome to episode 499 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, a writer for Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, so, it's another day, of course, mm-hmm. and that means that the Diamondbacks played, Ben. They did? Uh-huh. And uh, when, the, <laughs> when the Diamondbacks play, we need headlines. So, yeah, that's right. There needs to so, be a story. I'm going to read you ten headlines. that We've got ten were selected as top submissions. Ten. That's twice <laughs> as many as usual, so you know they're good. You know that they're ten gold headlines. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, read you these ten. I'm going to ask you to pick a winner. But then I'm also just going to ask how much you've learned about the game. I mean, if I were given ten headlines uh, to convey the game to you, I think I'd, I'd like to think that I could pretty much tell you everything you'd get from a game story uh, cumulatively. So we'll see if we can. So ten submissions. All right. Mm-hmm. Hill keys victory in effort to get out of town. That's how headlines are, right? Isn't that how most headlines go? <laughs> um, well, there's some useful information in there. I know who won. I know who had something to do with the victory. Yes. And I, I guess I know where the Diamondbacks are going to play next. <laughs> also, yeah, although you, although going you, on the road. You would think that they were on the road already, right? To get out of town... I would think normally would imply that they're in an inhospitable environment. Yeah. But they're, so I think that's slightly misleading, but they're actually at home. Mm-hmm. I think anytime you have in effort to in the headline, you've gotten a little too verbose. Mm-hmm. Uh, brevity is the key to a headline. All right. Gut check passed. <laughs> uh, nope. I don't, I don't get anything from that. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> At all, but I, I, I mean, at least it's it's uh, strong. It's uh, it's got strong strong noises, strong fricatives and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually don't hate that one if if I'm assuming that there's going to be like a picture and a story that goes with it and maybe a deck head. All right. Oh god, man. Late walks in a hill of a win. Hill Ugh. of a like hell of a one, yeah. except the e in hell of a has been changed to an i. Late walks in a hill of a win. No. Okay. <laughs> but you now know that there were late walks. Presumably, this was a. Yeah. Was the was it a, a walk off walk? What was? I'm intrigued. Yeah, as am I. By the way, I just realized I'm. Hang on. Now, hang on, just a just a darn second. I am looking at the box score from today's game. And none of this adds up, so I'm guessing that this is has to be from yesterday's game. But if it's yesterday's game, they did not get out of town. They played another game in the same city. <laughs> yes, they. Wait, um, I'm, I'm still a day off. Hang on, hang on. Maybe they didn't. Actually, no, they didn't. Yesterday. Wait, today is today is Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday so night. Yesterday was Tuesday. And uh, they did not get out of town. <laughs> same, same location. So I think that one is especially uh, not allowed. All right. Uh, all right. Next one is D-backs must beat be, Tigers. Must be like the, the idiom, right? 
Get out of town. Get out of town. <laughs> it's got to be that. <laughs> D-backs. I love that these all have their own uh, capitalization conventions, and mm. the whoever puts them into the website doesn't bother to fix them. So some of them are just like, they look like E.E. E. Cummings poetry, basically. <laughs> all right. D-backs beat Tigers, quote, Miggy style. Mm. I don't know what a Miggy style is. What is a Miggy style, Ben? Uh, I don't know. Someone on the Diamondbacks must have hit well. On the Triple Crown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, somebody won the Triple Crown last night. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, next one is... Um, oh, gosh. I swear to you, I'm going to just read this exactly how it appears, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. One by one is three, dot, dot, dot. So far, Anderson <laughs> Anderson chased, but D-backs get relief. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, need a special section for this paper to accommodate this headline. One by one is three, dot, dot, dot. So far, Anderson Chase, but D-backs get relief. <laughs> um, one by one is three. I don't know. All right. Know. A walk in the park in D-backs win. That's what happened. There's a yeah. walk. Although, I will note, though, that um, this will make you think that what, what you would think walk off walk or, yeah i still or, or go ahead run walk yeah exactly did not did not happen <laughs> uh-huh. uh the go ahead run scored on a single there was there were two walks earlier in the inning and aaron hill didn't have any <laughs> any of them uh <laughs> but he homered in the second i uh, might have done more uh the uh, oh i get okay okay the other miggy comes through in the clutch so, okay, so that's what the Miggy style is. Mm. They, they beat the Tigers with their own Miggy, uh, Miguel Montero. I the, see. The other Miggy comes through in the clutch. All right, D-backs grab Tigers by the tail. Uh, well, tells me who won. That's all mm-hmm. it tells me. Tells you who was playing. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, Tells you that tigers are an animal with a tail. In case you didn't, I mean, if you're like, what's a tiger? Mm-hmm. Uh, D-backs take a bite out of the tigers. That's kind of the, <laughs> it's kind of the opposite, I guess. Yeah. It, or maybe it's saying that tigers bite, or diamondbacks bite. Mm-hmm. D-backs bite. I think D-backs. Yeah. So this, this actually D-backs bite. I'm assuming that this means that the, the D-backs took a bite because they're a snake that bites. This is actually the same guy who proposed venomous snakes uh, a previous day. So he likes, he's mainly in this for the snake. <laughs> His main interest in baseball are snake attributes. Well, he roots for the right team. <laughs> and last one Diamondbacks climb hill to victory. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if that were a headline at, at MLB.com. Yeah, I wouldn't either. He went one for three, mm-hmm. with a home run in the second inning. Mm-hmm. He did. He drove in a run with a with a ground out, and he drove in a sack fly. So fine. Uh, he he was significant to the effort. Uh, but my, I guess I just don't think he rises to um, to headline to headline status. But that's the cleanest one, and that's the one that won. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, before before you start asking 
questions. Uh, a few weeks ago, we got one from Eric uh, Hartman that we didn't answer, mm. and it's quick. Okay. Um, he wanted to know what is our what is our favorite score. Yeah. Hmm. What's yours? Uh, I like a I like a three nothing, and I like a seven one. I like a nine nothing too. As as far as blowouts go, nine nothing is my favorite blowout. Do you like blowouts? Um. I, I do. Yeah, I do. If it's got something that keeps, like nine nothing, you're you know you're seeing a good pitching performance. Uh, otherwise, I don't. I only like blowouts. Otherwise, if the if the scoring continues, I don't like a blowout like the Red Sox game the other day where it was fourteen to one in the fifth and it ended fourteen to one. I hate a game like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, a good twenty three to two game where the scoring just keeps going on and on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I enjoy that, but. Uh, nine nothing's about as far as I go without thinking this game's lost in, lost it. Mm. Yeah. So three nothing is probably my favorite. I like five four. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, it's about an average amount of scoring, but it's close. Mm-hmm. All right. By the way, Ben, yeah. I think I'm gonna. I think I am going. At someone's suggestion, I think I am gonna perhaps try to organize. Um, and effectively wild crashes the Arizona Republic headline competition competition. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, going to so, say there was there was some suggestion of that in the Facebook group, so it's possible that some of those were were our people. Probably uh, not. Probably not. So, but I think that I, I I'm not ready to start it yet. I think I'll announce the the rules or the the, the guidelines uh, maybe Monday. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be that would be fun maybe. Um, all right, this question comes from Aaron. He asks, there's been talk, at least among Cardinals fans, that the way Johnny Peralta's contract is structured is beneficial to the team if he starts to decline. Not to complain, he's been great this year. His salaries for 2014 to 2017 are $15.5 million, $15 million, $12.5 million, $10 million. Unlike most contracts, his salary goes down instead of up as he ages, this means he could be easier to trade or move to a different position if he can't cut it at shortstop anymore. So the question is, why don't teams, why don't more teams give players front-loaded contracts, or at least older players? Probably wouldn't make sense to pay Trout less for his age 27 season than 26. That way the team pays more for the years the player's likely to be more valuable in, and the player gets the same amount of money either way. Are players and agents refusing to accept those types of contracts in order to make it more difficult for the team to trade or bench slash platoon them? Or is that just not the normal way to structure a contract so it's just generally not done? I have a friend who's been <clears throat> arguing this to me for years, and I've never, I've never got it. I've never understood the point. So this, the, the premise of this is essentially that... Um, that the own, you know, that the people in the front office, you know, pretty much anybody who's involved in the decision making has just as much stake in the team five years from now as they as they do today, um, right? Because that's that's why they would, you know, quote unquote, I guess, sacrifice uh, this year for five years down the road. Clearly, they think that five years down the road is just as important, and that's true. I mean, that that's how baseball teams are. They um, you know they exist for a hundred years, and they want to win as many of those years as possible. And five years from now is roughly as important as this year is. Um, so, but once you accept that, then you think, well, wait, why can't? I mean, why aren't they capable of just like sort of adjusting in their head? Like, uh, if 
if they know that they're gonna I don't know how to put this Ben mm. are you still there Ben I'm here yeah <laughs> but are you, are you still there <laughs> Ben uh, if, if you're capable of thinking uh, in that long term five year plan kind of way you'd think you'd be capable of balancing your books as well in a long term five year plan kind of way so other than having cash availability uh, there should be no you know like you you obviously need to have enough cash to make payroll and if you put you know five years worth of expenses on day one uh, then you wouldn't have enough cash so you can't do that but mm -hmm. other than that limitation there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to basically balance your books with all of this in mind and so it shouldn't actually matter so long as you're making payroll it shouldn't actually matter um, so that's why I don't quite get the benefit of it and in fact the reverse is true uh, five years from now is actually probably not quite as valuable as right now is um, because um, you don't know where you're gonna be in five years you don't know like what your team's needs are gonna be etc and uh, so generally speaking I think teams prefer to play for today at the expense of tomorrow to some degree not so much that it cripples them or handicaps them in a great way but I think most teams would you know take a dollar today um, you know if they had to basically you know lose a dollar and a penny in a year and a dollar and two pennies in two years and so on the, the what you get today is just sort of seen as more valuable than what you get in five years Mm. And plus, if you're if you're pushing the money back, if you're deferring it, then you're you're saving yourself some money in the long term. If you're still if you're still around, just because just because a, a million dollars in five years will not have the buying power that it does today. So if you were a if you were a player, maybe you would want this. You would push for this, right? Is it is it surprising that players don't push for this? It does seem to be the convention that teams can backload a lot of the time, but there aren't a lot of front-loaded deals, and you would <clears throat> you would think it would be better for the player just to just to get more money while that you know while the that money is still worth what what it is when he signs. Well, I think that when they agree to these deals, they you know the math is done. I mean, yeah. the players union, for instance, puts a true value on each contract that reflects um, you know the 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 amount of money that it has to sort of be depreciated uh, or you know adjusted for inflation some years down the road, and so they're aware that you know a hundred million dollars now is worth more than a hundred million dollars in seven years. That's mm -hmm. accounted for. But when you think about it, just from a individual perspective, the player doesn't actually need to have access to that money right now. It's guaranteed, so he knows he's going to have it for his great grandkids. But he doesn't actually need to have access to that money right now. Whereas the team, arguably having to make payroll and having to make these $100 million decisions does need that access to that money right now. I assume that it's, it's that, you know, it reflects more or less the, the true value of the contract. And then if a player demanded that, he would get slightly less because he would be getting paid essentially slightly more. Um, the other thing is that just, I mean, to, I don't know, to, to kind of be more, uh, to, to, to make the point hopefully a little bit better, if you have a guy who's um, getting paid $20 million for the first four years and then $2 million in the last year, um, well, yeah, he's not making as much in the last year, and, and theoretically, there's teams that would love to have a guy and only have to pay $2 million for him. But you've already paid him all the money, so 
if you flip it around and only have two million in the first year and then twenty million in the last four years, and in the last year nobody wants to pay him more than two million dollars, you still have the option of paying him that eighteen million dollars and then letting somebody else just pay him two. You just mm -hmm. you just swallow the, the money, right? And so mm -hmm. by front loading it, you're essentially taking the choice out of your hands. You've already paid him. You have no choice left anymore. You're sort of the money is gone. So it gives you actually more flexibility to have the money backloaded because then you have the choice of whether you want to pay him or whether you want to eat the contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and if you're a GM, you're probably in a perpetual fight or dialogue with your your owner to try to get a little bit more money and it's just the more payroll room available to you, the more possibilities you have, the more ways to put together your roster. So I guess there's just always a natural inclination to to kick the can down the road and and put off the payment until, I mean, this is why people carry credit card debt, right? Because you want to pay sometime in the future. Um, and if you're a GM, then there's always a, a not in considerable chance that you won't be around anymore when that bill comes due. So so why not stick it to the next guy? And last, one last thing is that a guy who's getting paid $25 million right now is getting, that looks like a lot more money now than it, it pro, you know will at the end of the contract because salaries go up. And so uh, while the player is declining in value, the, the cost of a win is going up. And those don't necessarily cancel each other out, but... Um, it's part of it. So, um, in 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 a way, having the salaries go up just reflects that the costs are also going up. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that matters to anybody, but at least it, there's a sort of logical consistency there, or something aesthetic mm -hmm. consistency. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm going to read the next one. It's from Vinit. Uh, let's say a team offered a qualifying offer to a player, and the player countered with two years, twenty million dollars. Qualifying offer, of course, last year was one year and what fourteen point three or fourteen point one million. Mm -hmm. So the player counters with two years and twenty million. If the team refuses, then they probably just want the draft pick and don't really care for the player. Would the player then have a case to file a grievance? It's my understanding that the spirit of the qualifying offer system is such: we're a small market team. Here's the best we can offer you. If you get poached by a team with a bigger wallet, we'll get some compensation. But if the team is unwilling to negotiate past the bare minimum, the player would certainly have a case to make. Um, I guess that's the spirit of the qualifying offer system. Uh, I guess, but um, it's not the uh, you know contract law is not necessarily governed by the spirit of such things, for one thing, uh, and the way that the qualifying offer system is actually um, put in play is not really keeping with the spirit either. So. No, I think the answer is that there would be no case whatsoever. That's not really how these things work. All right, so I'm going to read the next question. It's from Mike. Uh, Sam and Ben, do teams scout umpires? And how far in advance do they find out who is behind the plate? If they do scout the umpires, what adjustments, if any, do the teams employ? I've actually had, I've been to two ballpark events recently. And in both ballpark events, this was a question that somebody asked me while I was watching the game. Um, and uh, both times it led to a lengthy conversation. Do you you pay more attention to umpire bias, of course, than most people? Do you have an opinion about the merits of scouting an umpire? Um, well, I think teams do it to some extent. I don't. I don't know that there's really 
that much potential to to leverage it i mean you can you can you can uh, there have been umpire reports on the internet in the past and teams have their own umpire reports that i think are pre-built but how much can you really do with that you can you know give a player a printout of a heat map of that umpire zone or something and and maybe he calls pitches a little more on the outside corner, off the outside corner than the typical umpire. Maybe he gives you the, the high strike a little bit more. I, you know, I, I guess that's, that's something that a catcher would want to keep in mind and, and maybe would uh, change location a, a little bit. But I would think that uh, for the most part, you, you still want to throw to the same areas I think I, I don't know that I guess you might be willing to expand the zone a little more in certain cases. Yeah. So, yeah, that's more or less what my answer was both times it, it came up. I mean, I think that I've mentioned this once before, but um, so somebody told me once that when you're deciding what pitch to throw um, and where to throw it, um, the first like if you're a catcher calling a game and trying to decide what pitch to call, or if you're a pitcher pitching a game and trying to decide what pitch to throw, the first uh, thing that you think is, what's my strength as a pitcher? Um, am I a sinker baller or am I a you know high heat guy? Because uh, you're going to play to your strengths. Number two situation, uh, number two thing that you think about is the situation. Is this a situation where I need to throw a strike? Where I sort of need to throw a strike, where I'm going to waste a pitch, uh, where I'm worried about the guy on deck or the guy on deck behind him. Um, you know, is it a close game? Is it a home run ballpark? Uh, do I need to get a double play? All those things. So the situation is the number two thing. And then the third thing, which is sort of as it was conveyed to me, and which I think that a couple of pieces that I've, I've written, I've, I've kind of felt the same way when I've looked at the idea. The third thing is the batter himself. What's the batter's strength? And so if he's a, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's low down the list. I mean, that's that's already kind of a, a not that pressing issue and it doesn't influence all that much. In some extreme cases it does. But, you know, you're talking about a couple cases out of a hundred, a couple pitches out of a hundred, really, where you see, um, you know, pitchers change in approach from, you know, Sean Figgins to, you know, Mike Trout. Um, it's not that big a thing. And so then for the umpire thing, it would be a clear number four thing. Like, like even if you thought that, okay, an umpire, uh, one umpire was likely to call, you know, eight more low pitches a strike out of 100 than a, another umpire, even if you thought that was the case, you wouldn't capture anywhere near all eight of those because um, most pitches, you're just ignoring that. That's not even a factor. You're totally focused on... Uh, factor number one, then two, and then a little bit three, and then like way down is the umpire thing. So it's very, very rare that that would be enough to sway you off of your first three decision tree uh, routes. Um, and then of course you have to actually hit the spot that you're trying to hit if you're trying to get the umpire to do something. So I just think that it's very hard to capture any sort of benefit. I mean, I, I think that teams are totally aware of the umpire. Uh, like I think that Probably just by being in the game and by having one guy in the dugout who pays attention to it more than other people, or you know, having the bench coach who pays attention, or you know, just seeing these guys a bunch of times a year, I think they all know before they even step on the field. Like, oh, it's this umpire; he usually calls this or this. 
but I doubt that it changes their approach mm-hmm. like really hardly at all. They might even like I could see them thinking that it might, but then once they get out there, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I asked someone about this, someone in the front office about this when we got this question, and he said that their team had like a pre-built umpire report, but that his impression was that no one really used it all that much, and it wasn't really of all that much use. And uh, he actually, he actually was under the impression that technically teams are barred from using pitch effects to evaluate umpires, which is interesting. Like there's hmm. like there's an umpires union rule against it or something. I know that, I know that you know. Uh, because the data is made available for free on the internet, it's kind of discouraged for people on the internet to to use it in, in that application. But I did not know that that also extended to teams. Of course, there's really there's nothing that that anyone could do about it, really. But but yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's right. Uh, teams. I, I mean, I don't know. You're you're already loading up players with uh, opposing hitter tendencies and it's probably more important to to focus on that rather than have the umpire thing in the back of your head also mm-hmm. you want to do play index sure cool mm-hmm. uh play index baseballreference.com uh offer code bp um so uh the a- the a's of course uh you know had that really great run differential uh earlier this year they still do they've mm-hmm. had a great run differential um, the A's have a very good run differential, and uh, the other day you and I were talking about how to uh, find run differentials over the course of you know X game stretches for a team, and uh, we of course found this on Baseball Reference. So, uh, so I was looking at the best what uh, Baseball Reference Play Index list as best N game streaks you can find uh, the teams with the best stretches of runs scored or runs allowed or run differential or record over the course of however many games you want to do it. And you can do that forever, and uh, you can do it from the start of the season or at any point in the season, so on and so forth. So uh, so I was looking at the A's, and I wondered what their best stretch has been this year by run differential and um, you know how that compares to the rest of the league. And so... Uh, I looked at for just 2014, and I set a 20-game limit, so the best 20-game stretch. And Oakland's best stretch was a plus 62 run differential from uh, May 11th to June 1st. What's kind of incredible is that the um, the A's have, and this isn't totally incredible, obviously it will kind of make some intuitive sense, but the A's have like all the best stretches. Like mm-hmm. they have the best like nine stretches. Um, which makes sense because they're just, you know, each game kind of leads into a new stretch, right? So you have a 20-game stretch, and then the next day is just the end of a new 20-game stretch, and the next day is the end of a new 20-game stretch. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the Oakland is way above anybody else there, plus 62. The Rockies had a stretch where they were plus 56. Uh, the Tigers had a stretch where they were plus 53. So anyway, so what? how good is plus 62? So I went and I looked at every year since 1988, uh, to see who has the best and the worst run differential stretches over 20-game periods. The worst is the 1996 Tigers, who managed to be minus 92 over a 20-game stretch, which is really bad. But the best is even more impressive. The best is the 2002 Angels, who over 20 games 
were plus 96 over 20 games. No other team was even plus 90 in any 20-game stretch. So they are way ahead of everybody. Um, and um, uh, so I have a little bit of a uh, little bit of history about these Angels. Okay. So there's a few there's a few things that are really interesting about this stretch. One is that it started with a loss. The first of those 20 games they lost, and so uh, while of course any N game stretch is going to be kind of by almost definition cherry picking, this one does at least start with a loss. It's like the most honest way that you can do this. Um, they lost one to nothing, and the thing about that loss is that it came in April. It came on April uh, 17th of 2002. And it dropped them to six and fourteen, um, which is the worst start in franchise history. Six and fourteen. So this is a team that was at its like basically lowest possible point, like one of their lowest points in franchise history. Uh, and with that loss, that loss itself, the the very loss itself, kicked off like the greatest stretch in franchise history. Um, and of course, as we know, uh, would ultimately lead to their one World Series title. So in that 20-game stretch, they scored 151 runs. They allowed 55. So that's an average game score of seven and a half to two and three quarters for a 20-game stretch. They won the average game by almost five runs. In that stretch, they had a 19 to nothing win. They had a 21 to two win. Uh, they had a 10 to one win and 9 to two win and a whole bunch of five game wins. Um, they went three, uh, 17 and three in that stretch. As a group, they their offense hit 317, 378, 497, which is a 875-ish OPS. Uh, Benji Molina had a 600 OPS in that stretch. Every other player was basically bananas. Uh, their batting averages, the rest, actually, all their batting averages in that stretch are, I think it's like uh, two, 262, 347, 341, 322, 318, 348, 318, 288, 333. Um, they, uh, their um, pitching staff, meanwhile, allowed an OPS of 229, 292, 351, which actually sort of surprised me to have the most dominant stretch in basically modern baseball history. And the difference is only like, uh, you know, the difference between a, you know, uh, all-star hitter and, uh, you know, below average hitter, well below average hitter. But it's not like they, they weren't holding everybody to Brandon Wood levels and they weren't all Barry Bonds. It's just sort of basically good baseball being played against bad baseball being played. Anyway, so they were dominant. They were awesome. And so I wondered, given that this was a team that wasn't supposed to be very good coming into the season, that started out 6-14... and 14, um, that, uh, uh, you know, wasn't a, a team that this was expected of. I wondered if everybody was all excited during this stretch, whether this historic dominance captured America's uh, attention. So I went back and I read Baseball Prospectus, uh, the two months uh, that surround this, basically from the beginning of April to the end of May. Uh, this stretch went from the middle of April to the middle of May. So... And I went to see what they, what people were saying, and uh, nobody was particularly excited about this stretch. Nobody was talking about what a great team they were. Uh, here's basically a summary um, of, of articles referencing the Angels during this stretch. Okay, An article arguing that they should sign Jose Canseco to play first base instead of Brad Fulmer. Mm-hmm. Brad Fulmer, meanwhile, was hitting 348, 394, 606 over this 20-game stretch. Um uh, a piece 
grudgingly admitting that Garrett Anderson is in fact an above average left fielder. Uh, an article on how Tim Salmon had fallen off a cliff, uh, performance wise, mm-hmm. not, a, not a real cliff. Mm-hmm. Salmon hit 318, 440, 652 during this stretch. The piece came out two weeks into the stretch, uh, two and a half. Um, a piece uh, talking about their bad bench and saying, quote, if that was the bench of a team with a great lineup, it would be acceptable. But this is the bench that is guaranteed to keep an already bad offensive team on the field. Um, and finally, a piece noting that the pitching was outperforming their peripherals. Uh, didn't say this, but the implication being that they got lucky or were getting lucky. And uh, this, these are all responsible things that were being said. I don't mean to imply that uh, any of these things shouldn't have been written. The Angels had this fantastic year, this miracle year, this magical year, and then the next year they dropped to like 70-some wins. So it isn't actually as though necessarily the team uh, was uh, fundamentally necessarily a great team. They probably were that year, but fundamentally they weren't necessarily a great team. Um, and uh, it was, I think fair to say that it was way too early to get excited but yeah anyway this is just the point being that uh the great the really the truly great things happen uh some of them happen over the course of two decades and we get to watch them and then wonder why they're on steroids Uh, and some of them happen uh before we've noticed that they're happening and don't find out about it until 12 years later Mm -hmm. (laughs) good good one Um, bp bp coupon code bp yeah. $30 for the annual subscription to Play Index. Mm-hmm. Get it. Use it. Do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so I'll read one last one. Uh, this is from uh, Ranger in Seattle. Uh, ben and Sam, one of my favorite regular topics is can pitchers throw strikes even when they really want to? However, I've always been a little uneasy with the stat you generally cite. That stat being what? That on 3 counts to pitchers, when uh, the man on the mound has no incentive to throw anything except the fattest fastball ever right down the middle, they manage to hit the strike zone two-thirds of the time. That's the stat. Uh, Because, as you've mentioned every time, there may be a selection bias. When you're looking at pitchers who have gone to 3-0 with the opposing pitcher in the box, perhaps they have poor control to begin with. I was thinking of some other situations where the pitcher is just trying to throw a strike. Maybe we can look up the stats in those and triangulate. How about a 2-0 on the pitcher? That's when I'd start aiming down the middle. You know he's probably taking anyway. How about 2-0 and 3-0 to all batters with an 8-plus run lead? Or 3-0 to the number 9 hitter in the AL? Thanks, says Ranger. I think that you'd have some of the same issues in all those cases. It would mm-hmm. be, uh, you'd be, uh, you'd be, uh, with, it'd be a sliding scale. You'd be, in some cases, more certain that the pitcher is ready to throw a strike, but then that would mean that it's, there's more incentive for him to have not gotten there in the first place, and therefore he might just be wild. Uh, or you can be less certain that he's going to groove one down the middle, such as uh, you know, 3-0 count to the number 9 hitter in the AL, um, maybe. Um, less certain that he's going to groove one right down the middle, but you know, more confident that he's not uh, naturally wild. Anyway, uh, we're not going to be able to answer that right now, but Ben, you're going to answer it with other words. Yeah, so we we have been interested in this question, both of us, and we've been trying to approach it in this kind of oblique way by looking for these scenarios where we could be pretty confident that a pitcher was trying to throw a strike and then and seeing how often they were able to follow through on that goal. And 
hopefully I have a better answer now or a more direct answer. So I wrote an article about Tim Lincecum for Grantland that is up this morning, if you're listening on Thursday morning when this podcast went up. And uh, I was talking about how Lincecum has kind of bounced back a bit, or, or at least has been in terms of, you know, runs allowed. He's, he's been an above average starting pitcher for most of this season, since since the end of April, certainly. Um, and it's... Uh, was kind of a tricky problem to find out why that is and and so just improved command was was something that was often suggested by people who had watched him or uh people with the team or maybe even Lincecum himself that he was able to put the ball where he wants it and that this has been a key to his partial comeback in that he's continuing to throw less and less hard every year uh he he got in a lot of trouble when he was pitching, you know, in 2012 and to a lesser extent last year when he was pitching more or less the way that he had been before when he had been something like a power pitcher. Um, he was not getting away with the pitches that he had once gotten away with when he was throwing much harder. So I wanted to try to find a way to quantify his command. And I was thinking about doing uh, a time-consuming exercise where I watched all of his pitches and I, uh, you know, recorded the pixel of my screen where the catcher's glove was before he threw, and then through the and then recorded the pixel of the screen where the ball crossed the plate and and figured out the distance between those pixels and what that equated to in inches. And I could have done that, and it would have taken a long time. But there are companies and services that do this already, so. Uh, the, the usual data collection companies, BIS and Inside Edge, they do this, at least to, to some extent, in some way. They record the, the catcher's target before the pitch is thrown and, of course, have the, the location of the pitch. But that information uh, is sort of hard to obtain. Um, they have to get permissions from, from teams to share it or they're not willing to share it if you don't pay a certain amount to get access to that information. But the other and maybe better alternative is Command FX, which is like, it's like the, the least mentioned, the least known of the FX products from Sport Vision and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. It, it uses the same system of cameras that Pitch FX and Hit FX use, but it is, it is it is targeted toward command. It records the position of the catcher's glove at the moment when the pitcher releases the ball. And then it records the position of the ball when it is in the same plane as the glove. So, you know, a couple feet behind home plate, whatever it is. And they, they extrapolate that trajectory if, if the ball is contacted and does not actually make it that far behind the plate. But, uh, so they can more or less answer this question. They, they know where the catcher's target was. They know where the pitch crossed home plate and can figure out the distance between those two points. And so I asked if they would be willing to share some information about Lincecum. They were, and were also able to provide the, the league average. So the, the league average distance between the catcher's target and the ball in the same position in space uh, and this is fastballs only because breaking balls a little more complicated. The, the 
pitcher is not always necessarily aiming for the catcher's glove when he throws a, break, a breaking ball. Maybe he's he's aiming below the strike zone uh, in in the approximate horizontal location of where the glove is, but it's not not quite the same. So they limit it to fastballs only. And the average distance between the target and the location of a fastball in the majors this year and, and for the past few years, they've been recording this data since 2010, is 13.8 inches. So that is presumably, I mean, now maybe there are exceptions. Maybe maybe certain pitchers are not always aiming for the glove. I know uh, some pitching coaches will, will tell a pitcher to aim for something else. Um or maybe he's not necessarily aiming at all. So it's probably not perfect, but as a proxy for how good pitchers are at putting the ball where they want it to be, this seems like about as as good an answer as we can come up with. So 13.8 inches, so uh, a little over a foot is how close pitchers can come. Yeah. And Lincecum, you can, well, you can go read about about where Lincecum ranks and what his change over the past few years is, but but this seems like a lot. Yeah, although when I when I asked you to guess, you guessed higher, right? I think. Uh, I'm eating a peach, by the way. I guessed higher when uh, you asked me for Lincecum. I didn't guess uh, higher when you uh, asked me the average. That's true. I would have guessed lower on the average, mm-hmm. and I think that probably the average. I, I think probably the average is slightly lower. Because uh, of the things you noted, I mean, it would that those would be exceptions, those cases. But the exceptions would skew the numbers slightly, um, and you know, would make it so that true the true average is probably a little bit lower. I mean, certainly with it seems like there are a lot of pitchers who throw two seamers with movement, where the catcher is deliberately setting up at not the target. Right? Mm-hmm. It's basically saying start it here. We know there's going to be movement. Yes, at least that's the, the that's the legend. Um, so I would guess that it's a little lower, but yeah, I mean that's that's a lot. That's uh, most people wouldn't believe you when you told them that. I think most people would not believe you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fourteen inches, fourteen inches. Goodness gracious! So what do you think is the best? You don't know the answer to this, but no, I'd love uh, to. That was the first thing I wondered. Um, I don't even care who the pitcher is. I I just want to know what do you think is the best that any pitcher has? Like let's say it's Cliff Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think Cliff Lee's is, if you had to guess? Huh. I'll say, uh, say nine. Uh, I was going to say seven and three quarters. Mm-hmm. And and then let me ask you this: um, Do you think that pitchers uh, on three zero to pitchers would be better? I mean, when they ease off, do you think that they're able to hit their target better, or? Uh, do you think that it's just impossible to make a ball go 60 feet exactly where you want it to? Uh, and whether you ease off or not, they're, especially considering that they're not used to easing off at all, um, whether you ease off or not, you basically have the same margin of error or the same error bars. I, I'd guess it's a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, so I, I thought about, I actually thought about, I didn't. Because uh, I, I can't even watch the also the home run derby as it turns out. I found out uh-huh. when it came on um, on my computer. But I thought about doing something like this on the pitchers, the home run derby pitchers, to see how much they missed by and who was best, mm-hmm. and whether there's a big difference between 
the good ones and the bad ones or what I would have found to be the good ones or the bad ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't do that because I couldn't watch the game of the Derby. But uh, I wonder how much they miss by because they're really just grooving it in there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so is this consistent with the the rate of 3-0 strikes that we found? Like if it's uh, if the average pitcher misses by close to 14 inches on a fastball and and we found that the 3-0 strike rate was what 67% or something um does that does that make sense i mean if you're it's if you're if you're aiming for the center of the strike zone and you uh i don't know what the the average standard deviation or what the the typical standard deviation is for for this stat but if you're aiming for the center of the strike zone you've got you've got room to work with and yet you Presumably the ball could be anywhere within a 14-inch range of where you're throwing. So, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to do that math for a yeah. few reasons. One, because of the 3-0 auto strike yeah. makes the strike zone very large. Oh, although we weren't, that's not what we were looking at. We were looking at in the rulebook strike zone. Right. Uh, however, 14 inches you know, due west is a ball, but yeah. 14 inches southwest is not a ball. It mm-hmm. catches the, the lower corner. Um, and also, it's conceivable that pitchers know their tendencies to miss in certain directions and wouldn't aim right in the center. Mm-hmm. They might be missing by 14 inches, but usually they, you know, pull left or whatever, and so they might aim for the, you know, middle in part um, and allow themselves that 14 inches. So I don't know if it's consistent. Not ready to answer that. Okay, but at you least ask your, you should ask your new powerful friends. <laughs> well, at least we we got an answer. We're slowly getting answers to it's our... It's a good answer. It's a good answer. I learned a lot from that yeah. answer. 14 yeah. inches is a lot. I don't think people would believe that. Oh, yeah. they might believe it. They might believe it for Lincecum, but I think if you told them that, you know, Burley or Lee was nine or whatever they are, I don't think they'd believe that. Uh-huh. If you told them Maddox is seven and a quarter, I think it would hit you in the face. Right, because people, people say that certain pitchers can put the ball in a teacup. What's the the saying teacup that's a saying i think um so yeah i i doubt anyone can consistently do that anyway that's something we we learned about baseball so uh that's maddox maddox command was so good he could hit the diamond on the back of a venomous snake (laughs) so that's it for this episode please send us questions for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com Please support our sponsor. Oh, we said that already, but you should still do it. Baseball Reference Play Index. And join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. Many lively discussions ongoing. And please rate and review the podcast and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We will be back with another show tomorrow. So 3 nothing is probably my favorite. Um... Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> what scores? What scores do I like? Hmm. Uh... <sighs> <clears throat> I like...
Five, four. <laughs>